Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned. But he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study, it's our custom to make sure that we are in fellowship. We do this as a way of just reminding everyone that it is important for us on a day-to-day basis to make sure that we keep short accounts with God. As believers, we are saved We are redeemed, we have eternal salvation, but we still sin. Whenever we sin, it breaks fellowship with God. The family uh, harmony, rapport with God is broken. The ongoing teaching ministry, spiritual growth producing ministry of God the Holy Spirit is quenched. And when we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we usually begin with a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure you are in fellowship with the Lord as we prepare to study His Word, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Now, Father, as we come to your word today, we recognize that it is a sufficient revelation of yourself. That means it is, it is enough. It contains all that we need to know in order to know who we are, to know about our salvation, to know how to live in such a way that our thinking, our actions, our words honor and glorify you. We study your word because it is absolute truth, because it is the light that Uh, pierces our souls, pierces our thinking, and that it is in the light of your word that we see light. And in your revelation, you have given us to us information we need that applies to every area of human thinking. And this affects not only our present time, our present salvation, our current walk with you in our Christian life, but also your plans and purposes uh, for the future and how we should live today in light of that future. So as we continue our study in the book of Revelation, we pray that you would challenge us with what we study, that as we go through your word, we might uh, gain a greater uh, understanding of your plans, your purposes, that we might be once again impressed with how you have orchestrated history ultimately to bring about your honor, your glory, and that uh, all of the uh, problems in life, the rebellions of Satan, the angels, all of the problems of sin and suffering will ultimately be resolved. We pray this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Throughout human history, there is perhaps no other question that strikes at the heart of every person's experience than the question about how can God let this fill-in-the-blank horrible suffering, this terrible event, this, this calamity occur? How can, we're asking, can a truly good and loving God have allowed this to happen to me? Then philosophically, this question falls within the category of what is defined as the problem of evil. And the way philosophers structure this question is to say, well, if God is really a loving God, then how can he allow such horrible things to happen in history, horrible things from natural disasters to uh, human-on-human 
uh, evil? How can he allow the tragedies of a hurricane such as Katrina and all of the untold personal suffering that comes as a consequence of that? Or we can think through numerous natural disasters through history, whether they involve earthquakes or tornadoes, such as the one that wiped out the the town in Kansas last year, uh, Greenville, Kansas. We think of also human suffering, the untold suffering that occurs as a result of war and all of the uh, millions that were killed just in the 20th century and all of the wars that took place throughout the world, not just to mention the major wars of World War One, World War Two, Korea, Vietnam, but there were untold regional conflicts and wars and in places that we have difficulty locating on a map, uh, places in Africa, South America, where the injustice, the inhumanity of man to man just rages from decade to decade. And so people wonder, how can a loving God allow this to happen? And they conclude that it, either God is not love, and he just lets these things happen, or God is not very powerful because if he is truly love and, uh, then he, and he is omnipotent, then why doesn't he stop this? The idea is that if evil exists, it's either because God isn't truly loving or God is somehow incapable of resolving the problem. And if you're at all familiar with the debates that go on in this subject within the realm of, of uh, human philosophy, the question that is often raised is, well, there must be a higher purpose, some ultimate good, some summum bonum that, is, uh, that God is aware of that somehow uh, makes all of this worthwhile, that there is an ultimate purpose. And too often in secular philosophy, atheistic philosophy, non-Christian philosophy, the bottom line is that, well, they cannot imagine within the narrow confines of their human experience and their human thinking that there could be anything good enough, anything right enough, anything just enough that in their thinking, on their opinion, could ever justify the undeserved suffering that occurs in just the life of one human being, usually themselves, not to mention what happens to millions of people. We think of the horrors that occurred under Stalin where millions of Russians were killed or disappeared. We think of the Holocaust. And if you ever have the opportunity to evangelize, to witness to uh, an unsaved Jew this is often a question that will come up. How can I really believe in God who has made us his chosen people? And look at what he let happen. And so we come to the scriptures and we know that the scriptures give answers. In fact, this is not a, not a problem or a question that is left unanswered in the scripture. God recognizes the seriousness of it. For the, I believe the very first book that was ever written in the Old Testament was written for the purpose of addressing this question and giving us an answer, and that's the book of Job in the Old Testament. Job himself was a righteous man, and he walked upright before God, the text says several times, and yet in the course of his life there are natural disasters that take the life of all of his children. Uh, there are natural disasters that wipe out all of his fortune. Uh, there are then a series of diseases that come into him, his body physically, and he goes through this incredible Suffering, And he has his three friends who give the typical answers people try to give, all ultimately come back to the fact that you must have done something to uh, anger God. There must be something in your life that, that has brought this about. Ultimately, it must be your fault that you're going through this, this suffering. And as Job wrestles with the <coughs> ill-conceived uh, advice of his friends, and a lot of what they say is true, but the overall framework is what makes it wrong. Ultimately, Job challenges God to give him an answer. And then God appears to him, and in a series of, of rhetorical questions, uh, beginning in Job chapter 38, God gives, gives these, asks these questions of Job in order to direct his attention to his own finite knowledge. And God never directly answers the question of why there is evil and why there is suffering or why, Job, there was this suffering in your life or this. Of course, we know when we read Job that there's something going on at a higher level, something that takes place that is above and beyond what is seen in the physical, empirical 
world of human creation, and it has to do with this rebellion that has taken place between Satan and the angels, and so there is a spiritual dimension to all of this. And what God is basically focusing Job's attention on is the fact that that Job, with all of his capabilities, with all of his intellect, with all of his uh, mind, could never possibly uh, comprehend, organize, assimilate, and interpret all of the data that God knows. And so there is no way that Job could understand the answer if God gave it to him. And so the bottom line is we have to trust God, that God has allowed sin and evil and suffering whether it is personal suffering, man, uh, evil done by man to man, or whether it is the, the suffering that comes from natural disasters, God allows this to continue in human history because ultimately he will stop it and there will be a resolution. But once that resolution occurs, that is the end of history. And so God allows it to continue for the time being in order to extend his grace to mankind. Another reason he allows it to continue, we see in history, is because it teaches a lesson. There's a pedagogical purpose where it teaches what happens as a result of the creature's rebellion against God. For you see, all of this suffering that we have in human history, whether it is the suffering that is caused by one evildoer to another evildoer, or whether it is suffering that comes upon those who are without guilt, those who are uh, without blame, and it is undeserved, uh, unjustified suffering. It all comes because there is, in this creation, there has been a rebellion, and that rebellion has brought about this uh, natural disaster in the cosmos. And when we go back to Genesis chapter 3, we studied the fact that In Adam's fall, the direct, immediate consequence was for him was the penalty of sin. And he died spiritually and he was separate from God. But that death, that spiritual death that came upon mankind because he was in the image and likeness of God had reverberating consequences that just, that, that, that rippled out through all of creation itself. Romans 8 says that the Creation itself currently suffers and groans, awaiting the day of redemption. So that one of the reasons we often have trouble understanding God's answer to undeserved suffering, to the ongoing presence of sin and evil in in the world, is because we tend to restrict these concepts to simply a spiritual realm. We're often uh, uncritically impacted by uh, Western thought, that there's this distinction between the immaterial and the material world, and they don't really uh, uh, address each other. But what the Bible says is that there were unintended physical consequences to the immaterial sin, the spiritual rebellion on Adam's part. And when God ultimately resolves the sin problem, which is the source of all undeserved suffering, all evil, all of the calamities that we think of in earth, it will involve uh, a, a dealing with both the both creation or nature as we often think of it. There will be unbelievable disasters, cosmic crises. Uh, there will be geophysical manifestations that take place during the future tribulation period. All of which is part of those what what the scripture calls those birth pangs that ultimately result in and end in that final uh, judgment of God where he finally resolves the problem of sin and evil and injustice. Whenever you are, are talking with an unbliever or someone who has serious questions in this area and says, well, how can you believe in a biblical God that he's loving when he allows these things to happen? First thing that comes to my mind is, well, if you don't take the Bible's viewpoint, then your view is really depressing. Because your view ultimately means that there is no re- there is no meaning, there is no rhyme or reason in the universe, there is no purpose. All of this is just the way things are, and that's extremely dark, dark and depressing. What the Bible says is God has postponed that judgment to a time in the future, but there is a time 
when there will be a rendering of justice and judgment in the future. There is an answer to the question that the psalmist raised, How long, O Lord, how long will the righteous suffer and the ungodly prosper? That even though it may not appear on our timetable or in our lifetime, the Bible teaches that God in his wisdom has an ultimate and final resolution to this problem. And we see the, this answered in the book of Revelation. We have been studying Revelation now for several years. We've gone through the first three chapters, which deal with uh, the, what occurs in the past in terms of chapter 1, what occurs in the present, church age, chapter 2 and chapter 3. A little over a year ago, we began the prophetic section in chapter 4, and for the last year, we have focused on that throne room scene in Revelation 4 and 5 as the... Uh, angels and the four living creatures have called and searched, called upon and searched for one who is worthy to open the uh, seven-sealed scroll. And we saw that fabulous scene in heaven when the Lamb of God appears before the throne. And it is the Lamb of God who is worthy because he was slain for our sins, because he has purchased from every tribe, from every tongue, from every nation. He has purchased... Sinners, and he has paid the price because of his redemption, because of his death, burial, and resurrection. The Lamb of God is the one who is qualified to open that seal. And it is the opening of that seal that is what brings about these end time judgments that culminate in the final judgment of sin and evil and the final resolution of all injustice. And this is what is covered in the book of Revelation. A major theme in the book of Revelation is that of the execution of justice. When Jesus appears in, to John on the Isle of Patmos in Revelation 1, he is in the uh, appearance of one who is coming to judge. He is pure. He is white. He has the uh, accoutrements and the robe of one who is coming to judge. In Revelation 2 and 3, we have seven letters to seven churches, and those seven letters are not epistles like the other epistles in the New Testament. They are not written primarily to edify and to teach and to encourage believers. They are written as evaluation reports ending with warnings of judgment on these churches, not in terms of eternal condemnation, but in terms of the fact that they will eventually be evaluated at the judgment seat of Christ. And then beginning in Revelation chapter 4, we see the judgment on uh, mankind, on the earth dwellers, on those who have rebelled against God. And this includes not only judgment on man, but there is this also consequent upheaval that we will see that takes place in the physical realm. And we see that that a thread runs through Revelation 6 through Revelation 19 in the tribulation that is first articulated in the fifth seal judgment in Revelation chapter 6, verse 10. In the fifth seal judgment, there is a picture of an altar. And underneath the altar where the blood would run down, we see thousands upon thousands of martyrs. And in John's vision, he sees this martyr, these martyrs. These are those who were killed for the sake of Christ, for their, uh, for their loyalty to Christ in the tribulation period. And they cry out and they say, How long, O Lord, holy and true? Notice the emphasis on his integrity and his righteousness. How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? See, this is the same question that's been asked from time immemorial is, God, are you going to really bring justice in light of what has happened in history? And again and again, that has been postponed because of God's plan and because of God's purpose. And then as we get into the cycles of the cycles of the other judgments, when we get into the uh, trumpet judgments, one of the angels will say, uh, the answer to this question here in Revelation 6.10 is that you must wait yet a little while. And then when we come to uh, Revelation chapter 15, that little while has arrived. In Revelation 15.1 we read, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels who had seven plagues. And these are the last plagues, the bold judgments to come toward the last part of the tribulation period. 
because in them the wrath of God is finished. And we must always remember that the term wrath of God is not a term of personal anger. It is not an emotive term. It is a term that speaks of the outworking of God's justice. We have the same kind of idiom in our language when we uh, sometimes someone may go to court and they may have a very harsh verdict against them and we might say that the judge threw the book at them. Well, we don't mean that the judge literally threw the book at them, but we mean that the, they were judged and convicted and giving, given a sentence to the fullest extent of the law. Sometimes we express that as saying they experienced the wrath of the judge. That doesn't mean the judge was personally angry. It means that the, that he, the, the person was fully uh, <clears throat> convicted and punished on the basis of the law. And in Revelation 15.3, we see the angels, in the scene in heaven again, where the angels sing to God, Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God, the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways. This is after the seven seal judgments have been poured out and the seventh seal judgment includes the seven trumpet judgments and six of the seven trumpet judgments have been enacted and they're saying this is righteous and true. You know, from the unbelievers response, this is injustice. How can he do, how can God do this? But we see the emphasis here is on God's righteousness and his truth, his integrity in judging man. And they go on to say, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name, for you alone are holy. For all the nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. It is in these final judgments in history that evil is judged, contrary to all other systems of thought and all other philosophies. It is only within biblical Christianity that sin and evil and injustice is ultimately dealt with, it is ultimately judged, it is ultimately restricted and removed from its impact on creation. In Revelation chapter 16, verse 5, John writes, I heard the angel of the water saying, Righteous are you who are and who were a holy one because you judged these things for they... What? They poured out the blood of the saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. They deserve it. In other words, this is the answer to that prayer from those uh, tribulation martyrs in the fifth seal in Revelation chapter 6, that God is uh, avenging them. And the word for vengeance and avenging them in the Scripture is not this word that we often think of today in terms of personal vindictiveness, that somehow I'm going to get back at you. And if you do a word study through the Hebrew word used in the Old Testament, where we read, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, that is not a word that indicates personal vengeance or personal vindictiveness. It is a word that means justice, that there is finally going to be true justice, and when the law is broken, that violation is avenged. It is, does not come out of a small-minded motivation that is, uh, comes from a self-absorbed motive. It comes from the uh, justice of God. It is objective and it is based on his integrity. So we see this theme. And the reason I have taken this time to go through this in our introduction this morning is because today we shift gears again from our focus in Revelation 4 and 5 where we have been for the last year focusing on that heavenly throne room scene with the worship of the uh, 24 elders, the worship of the four living creatures, and then the shift as the Lamb comes forward to take the uh, seven-sealed scroll. And we see the praise that breaks out among all of the angels as they worship worship God and they worship the Lamb. And we have studied worship and what it is and what it means and, and how we are to understand that. And so we are now back into a new section of this this future part of Revelation. So as I have done in the past, I'm going to do again because it's important for us to never lose sight of the trees. Too often we can get so detailed in a study that we uh, get lost. We lose the forest for the trees. Sometimes folks get lost in the high weeds. And so we have to constantly come up and do a little flyover to understand what is going on here. 
And one of the major themes, one of the major questions that's addressed and answered in Revelation has to do with this whole theme of judgment and how God is judging, judging sin and evil. Now, as we look at what we have done in Revelation, we see that the book of Revelation is divided into three parts. This comes out of Revelation 1.19 when uh, the, uh, the Apostle John was told by the Lord Jesus Christ to write down the things which you have seen and the things that are and the things will t- which will take place after these things. The things which you have seen are those things which the Apostle saw at, in the immediacy of his experience which are recorded in chapter 1 as the risen, resurrected, ascended Lord Jesus Christ now appears to him to commission him to write the things that are in this book. Revelation 2 and 3 cover the things which are present tense. This describes the seven churches in Revelation that characterize the trends of churches throughout the present church age. And then Revelation 4 through 22 is yet future. There is a gap of time between uh, the events of 2 and 3 and Revelation 4 and following takes place in the future, the things which will take place after these things. Another way we can look at this outline and just try to think it through like that to remember the book. I try to help people uh, understand the Bible so you have a framework. When you go home, you read the book of Revelation, you can see how this fits. And so just remember that basic outline, the things which are, the, uh, the things which have been, the things which are, and the things which shall be, past, present, and future. You've got the whole book of Revelation right there. Uh, this outlines it a little differently. There's a key uh, outline verse, Revelation 119. The, in chapter 1, we see the glorified Christ as the priest judge of human history. That is how he is pictured as the righteous, purified uh, priest judge who will judge history and will come to rule and to reign in his kingdom in the future. Chapters 2 and 3 describe the various trends or cycles of the uh, seven churches of the church age. These are not uh, a linear view. I don't believe that they describe successive periods in church history but they describe the basic trends, characteristics, failures, and successes of church age churches. And the church age ends with the rapture of the church, which is not specifically mentioned, but I think is, is indicated at Revelation 4.1 as John hears a loud voice from heaven saying, come up here, and he enters heaven through a door opens in the heavens, and he enters heaven, and I think that depicts... The, the rapture of the church age. Revelation chapters 4 through 22 describe the future. This, there are three parts to this. The first part focuses on the tribulation. This is as God pours out his judgment upon rebellious mankind called earth dwellers in Revelation, rebellious demons and angels. Halfway through the tribulation, Satan and a third of his uh, fallen angels are kicked out of heaven. And they come to the earth and they become intermingled with the affairs of man so that Babylon, which is depicted as the capital of the Antichrist's final kingdom, is said to be a domain of men and of demons. And so we see a very different kind of scenario on the earth than we do today. When angels are not visible, there will be this uh, visible nature during the tribulation period because God is bringing to conclusion, his judgment of both angels and of man. At the end of the tribulation period, all unbelievers uh, are cast into Hades, into torments, awaiting the final judgment of the great white throne judgment. But the uh, uh, false prophet and the Antichrist are cast into the lake of fire. Satan is bound for a thousand years in the abyss and not released until the end of the millennial kingdom. The millennial kingdom is described in Revelation chapter 20. It's a time when the Lord Jesus Christ rules and reigns from Jerusalem as the Davidic king. It is a time of unprecedented peace, prosperity on the planet. And at the end of the millennial kingdom, Satan will be released and he will lead those who still reject the grace of God in a final revolt called the Gog and Magog revolt. And they are destroyed by God with fire from heaven. 
which time there is the great white throne judgment, then the present heavens and earth are destroyed, and God creates the new heavens and new earth, and we enter into the eternal state in Revelation 21 to 22. So if you just comprehend this movement here as we have on the chart, then you have an understanding of the dynamics, the flow of of the book of Revelation. Another thing that we will notice as we go through our study in future chapters is that the scenes shift. It is a very dramatic type of situation. We've already seen that in Revelation 4 and 5, as we start the future period, we don't start with the events that are taking place on the earth. We start with events that are taking place in heaven. And we know that somewhere between the rapture of the church and the events depicted in Revelation chapter 4, that the church age believers have already been evaluated and rewarded at the judgment seat of Christ. During that time, I believe, other things transpired in history as the human race tries to deal with the consequences and the collateral damage that's the result of the rapture. Uh, If the rapture were to occur today, it would wreak havoc in the economic world. It would wreak havoc in the military world. It would wreak havoc in... Uh, just in the nation as a whole, we have numerous, in just in the United States, uh, we have numerous uh, politicians, we have numerous congressmen, senators, presidents, military leaders, captains of industry uh, who are Christians who have trusted in Jesus Christ as their Savior. And at the rapture, they are going to be instantly uh, translated, receive a resurrection body, taken to heaven in the blink of an eye, First Corinthians chapter 15 says, And whatever it is that they're doing at the time that the rapture occurs, uh, well, you know, if they're flying an airplane or driving a car or any number of different activities, there's, there's going to be collateral damage. If they're leaders in industry, leaders in business, leaders of nations, then there's a power vacuum. And I believe that it is in this period of time, this transition period between the rapture and the beginning of the tribulation, that it's into that vacuum that you see this person who is identified in Scripture as the Antichrist, the first beast in uh, Revelation chapter uh, 13, that he is. this is when he begins to pull his uh, power base together to establish his uh, universal one-world government. And part of the purpose for this, of course, is to restore order out of what I believe will be the, uh, some of the chaos that occurs as a result of the... Uh, of the rapture. And so we see what is transpiring in heaven is that this scroll is given to the Lamb. The scroll represents a title deed to the planet. Jesus Christ is the second Adam in his humanity. He is going to fulfill the destiny of the first Adam who was to rule over the planet. And so he is going to come as the perfect Son of God who paid for sins, who is qualified to rule over the planet, and he is going to come to defeat the enemies of God and to judge them. And it is the breaking of those seven seals, each one of which represents a different stage in his reconquest of the planet, a different stage in his uh, judgment of of the evildoers on the planet. So it's helpful to understand that we have this uh, back and forth action that goes goes through Revelation as you read in Revelation 4 and 5 the scene is in heaven and then when we come to Revelation chapter 6 the scene shifts to earth it is the uh, outworking of those six the first six seals and if you think about I uh, can just think your way through seal trumpet bowl and remember that that series then you understand the, the, the basics of the tribulation period these are three series, three consecutive series of judgments. So in Revelation chapter 6, you see those uh, seal judgments on the earth. In Revelation chapter 7, we step back to see what God is doing. That there, are, that in the midst of all the calamity, the destruction, and the death that will take place in the planet, God preserves His own people and protects them. And He will initially save out 144,000 Jews because the focal point shifts back to his people, and part of what occurs during the tribulation is to bring Israel back to God. And when he does that, he begins with the salvation of 12,000 
uh, from each of the 12 tribes of Israel, and he seals them, protects them. They cannot be harmed by these judgments, and they will be evangelists throughout the uh, world during the tribulation. In Revelation chapter 89, we return back to the earth in the second series of judgments, the trumpet judgments. And at the conclusion of the trumpet judgments, there is a uh, a pause that takes place in heaven. Revelation uh, chapter 10, we focus on the uh, mighty angel who has a small book. This small book is related to various judgments that will be poured out upon upon the earth. In Revelation chapter 11, 1 through 14, there is a shift to what takes place in Jerusalem with these two witnesses, these two special witnesses that God sends to Israel. Many believe they are Moses and Elijah, or Moses and Enoch. And when we get there, uh, we'll try to resolve what some of those issues are. And after three and a half years of ministry in Jerusalem, uh, they are finally going to be martyred. God protects them up to that point. Then the Antichrist is going to have them killed. Their bodies will be laid out for public display. Uh, it will be on CNN and uh, Fox News and all the networks and people will be, if technology still works, they'll be looking at it on their iPods and all of their various uh, cell phones all around the world. And people will party. This will be a greater celebration and time for partying than uh, Christmas and birthdays and Independence Days all rolled up into one because man will think that he has gained victory over God by destroying his witnesses. But you never can keep a good man down. And three days after their death, these two witnesses will be raised from the dead by God and then they will be taken physically and bodily to heaven and all the earth will see this. And at that time, God will bring one of many massive earthquakes that occur during the tribulation period into Jerusalem. And the text says that 7,000 die and the rest give glory to God, glory to the God of heaven. And it is at that time that we begin to see large numbers of Jews turning to Jesus Christ as their Savior as a result of the witness of the 144,000, the witness of the, of the uh, two witnesses, it is at that point that they turn. And then there's another shift that takes place starting in the latter part of 1115 going down through chapter, uh, chapter 12. There's a focus on, uh, sort of steps back and looks at some of the key players, key events that are going on and following the ascension of these witnesses and this, this earthquake in Israel. There is a focus on what God is doing with Israel. In chapter 12, there's the image of the, the woman, the child who is the Lord. The woman is Israel. The child is the Lord Jesus Christ. The dragon is Satan. Here we see the spiritual dimension related to the fallen angels. Satan and his fallen angels are cast out of heaven. They persecute the woman and her child, which is Israel, and her child Christ are Christians in the tribulation period. The woman is persecuted and flees into the wilderness. And the reason the woman flees into the wilderness is these are tribulation regenerate Jews who have listened to Jesus' warning in Matthew 24 when Jesus said, when you see this sign, that is what is called the abomination of desolation, the sign set forth by the prophet Daniel and his prophecy in Daniel 9, when you see this sign, drop everything and flee into the wilderness. And so there is the... Uh, there is the woman fleeing into the wilderness and God is going to protect her for the next three and a half years. It's covered in chapter 12, 12, 13 through 14, talks about uh, <clears throat> her being taken care of on the earth and how God uh, protects her. And that's covered in chapter 13. Chapter uh, 13 and 14 talk about the rise of the Antichrist, the two beasts, the Antichrist, the false prophet, uh, their kingdoms, on the earth, chapter 14 talks about the other things that are transpiring upon the earth uh, as a result of, of um, these judgments. Then we go back to heaven in chapter 15, and there is a prelude to the bold judgments. And once again, uh, there, the, as the seventh trumpet has been sounded and revealed that this is uh, actually contains the final uh, seven bold judgments, then we see those begin to be enacted in chapter 16, 
through 18, back on the earth, chapter 16, describes the bold judgments. 17 and 18 describe the final destruction of the kingdom of man, the kingdom of Antichrist, and the destruction of Babylon. And then in the first part of chapter 19, the scene goes back to heaven as we see uh, our Lord preparing to descend to the earth with his army of church-age believers and accompanying him. That will be us. And then he comes to the earth. Revelation chapter 19, he defeats the enemies of the, uh, of, uh, defeats his enemies, defeats the Antichrist, the false prophet. They are cast into the lake of fire. The Satan is bound for a thousand years and Jesus Christ will establish his reign upon the earth. So that is the cycle that takes place. So as you read through Revelation, you can figure this out and it helps you orient to what exactly is taking place and how it is taking place. Now, as we get into this, we have to do some thinking about chronology. Correcting the typo there. To understand the chronology of Revelation 4 through 19 and the reason, and the reasons for, that should be the reasons for Revelation 4 through 19. We must do three things. To understand the chronology is important. Now, it's not going to change your spiritual life. It's not going to make you more secure in your salvation. It's not going to give you a richer prayer life. But you will understand what God is doing, and it's part of our responsibility as believers to know the whole counsel of God and everything that God has revealed. Scripture says that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, uh, for instruction in in training in righteousness. And see, we have to study the Word and understand all these things so that other parts of the Word will begin to make sense. And in doing this, we need to re-examine one of the foundational prophecies of all Scripture in Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 to 27, which talks about uh, the timetable God has for Israel in her history. The second thing that we have to do is be, as we approach this huge block of events that occurs in Revelation 4 through 19 is to fit this within the general framework of Daniel 9 and the Olivet Discourse. Jesus has three major sermons, if you will, that are recorded in the Gospels. There is the uh, Sermon on the Mount. There is his um, Upper Room Discourse, which is recorded only in the Gospel of John. And then there is the Olivet Discourse. The Sermon on the Mount occurs early in his ministry. Uh, It's parallel with the Sermon on the Plains in Luke. You have the uh, Upper Room Discourse, which is recorded only in John, which is for the disciples in preparing them for the uh, Christ crucifixion, resurrection, ascension, and their future ministry. But it is the Olivet Discourse where he is on the Mount of Olives and the disciples come to him right before he is to be crucified and said, what are the signs of your coming? And the Olivet Discourse is recorded in Matthew, Mark, and in Luke. And within that, uh, that discourse, his explanation, we see a chronology, a, a bare-bones chronology, but a chronology that fits and is built on uh, the Daniel 9 prophecy. So first you put, look at Daniel 9 as a general framework, then you look at Matthew 24, fit in some details, and then the next question is, on the basis of the anchor points given in Daniel 9 and Matthew 24, we can then understand the structure of the tribulation in Revelation chapter 4 through 19. And I don't know about you. Some of you studied prophecy. Some of you have been around and studied the Bible and been under uh, different Bible teachers, listened to different Bible teachers down through the down through the years, and you've maybe a level of confusion in your head because you've heard one person say this, and then you hear somebody else say that, and you say, "Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. This this person has a slightly different view than that person, and I, I don't understand, and I'm a little confused." And I've been the same way. And so, you know, part of this study is good for me because it's forcing me to work my way through. Uh, some very technical things. This last year when we were at the pre-trib rapture study group up in Dallas, uh, Dr. John Whitcomb gave a an excellent paper. I don't agree with it, but it was still an excellent paper. 
And everybody was very impressed, and Whitcomb is impressive. He's a great scholar of tremendous stature and has had phenomenal impact and has a tremendous grasp of the word. And he had a, but what was embedded within his paper was a chronology of, of revelation that had several people scratching their heads because, well, how did he deal with this passage and how do you deal with that passage and and uh, and it's not necessarily easy, and um, I, I disagree with some of those who have taught me. But that's the as you, if you're on the history coming on Monday nights to listen to history of doctrine, often how we advance in our understanding is because three people come up with the wrong answer, and then somebody finally gets it right. Uh, but you can't get it right before you've had the three missteps, and uh, and that's how we often learn is by the mistakes we make. So none of this involves heresy; it just as we try to deal with a massive amount of detail that's given in the Scripture. And I'm not going to overwhelm you with a massive amount of detail so you get lost in it, but we want to at least try to accurately understand this. So what we see in this time frame is we have, first of all, the rapture that occurs before the events of, uh, of chapter 4 and 5. And then in the basic structure of the book of Revelation, you have these three series of judgments. The seal judgments, followed by the trumpet judgments, followed by the bold judgments. The seventh seal contains seven trumpet judgments. The seventh trumpet judgment contains seven bold judgments. And all of these fit within this seven-year period known as the 70th week of Daniel, the last seven years in God's timetable for Israel according to Daniel chapter 9. And at the midpoint... There is the desecration of the temple by the Antichrist. We know that. That will provide one of our primary anchor points. But if you look at how various uh, prophetic scholars have tried to organize this, there are some that try to put all three in the last half of the tribulation period. Dr. Walvoord comes very close to this uh, in his commentary on Revelation, the idea being that the first three and a half years are a time of basic peace, and then everything falls apart during the second half of the tribulation period. And there are various others who follow a similar type of of plan. Then there are those who put the seven seals in the first half of the tribulation period with the sixth seal coming at the time of of the desecration of the temple. I've even read one recent commentary where the fourth seal or the fifth seal comes at the midpoint and then the trumpets and bold judgments come at the end. If you look at uh, Dr. Fruchtenbaum's work on the footsteps of the Messiah, you look at the uh, Tim LaHaye Prophecy Study Bible, a number of other works, the seal judgments and trumpet judgments come in the first half of the tribulation, and the seven bold judgments come in the second half of the tribulation. And um, so you're not left guessing, I have wrestled with this for uh, about six months, and I think that this is this is where I am most comfortable in dealing with all the data right now because it seems as if, as I pointed out, Revelation chapter 11, which comes after the sixth trumpet judgment, is, what is at the midpoint of the tribulation after the two witnesses have uh, been ministering for three and a half years, 1,260 days. They are taken to heaven and there's the earthquake, many, the rest in Jerusalem, 7,000 are killed, the rest are saved. And it's not till Revelation 12 that you see the, uh, the, the woman fleeing into the wilderness. comes after that, that the woman flees into the wilderness because of the testimony of Jesus. Matthew 24, Jesus said, flee into the wilderness because when you see the abomination of desolation occur. So that seems to anchor it at that uh, halfway point which would leave the bold judgments to come in the second half of the tribulation. So in order to understand that, we have to go back and begin with uh, Daniel chapter 9 and do a understanding of the framework in Daniel 9, the 70th week of Daniel, and then work that into uh, Matthew chapter 24. And as we do this, we see that God from... Uh, the Old Testament from early on has a plan and a purpose in history. It's not just random events. It's not like Henry Ford said that history is just one damn thing after another. That as Bible-believing Christians, uh, 
History has a plan and a purpose, and God is working out an unimaginable number of details and events in order to bring about a final righteous judgment and conclusion. And while we're in the midst of it, we don't always see what is going on. We cannot even comprehend all of the different strands and themes and events and how they ultimately will piece together. But like like Job, we have to learn that God is omniscient. He knows all the details. And even when we are going through uh, unexplainable suffering, we recognize that God is faithful, as we sang earlier, that he is always faithful and he has always provided for us and will always give us the help that we need. And he is a very present help in time of trouble. Let's bow our heads together in closing prayer. Father, we are so thankful that we have your word to answer the questions that we have. The the questions that often are nothing more than just curiosity about history or the future, but also the deep questions that trouble our souls as we see the uh, untold suffering that has occurred in human history and we wonder how that can be and if you are truly a loving God and are truly in control. We thank you that your word gives us sure and certain answers and that in your word you tell us that sin has separated us from you but that you provided the solution by sending your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our sins and in his body on the cross he paid the penalty for our sins. He bore in his own body our sin. He who knew no sin was made sin for us, Scripture says. And that in your justice you provided a perfect solution so that the penalty for sin would be paid and the issue would not be who we are, what we do. It's not up to us in terms of our morality. It's not up to us in terms of uh, doing the right thing, being with the right group. Uh, it's not up to us in engaging in the right rituals. It is simply trusting in your provision of salvation in Jesus Christ. And the scripture says, He who believes on him is not condemned, but the one who does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. We pray that if there's anyone here that has never put their trust in Christ, never relaxed and rested upon his complete provision at the cross, that this would be their opportunity to do so. That there are those here perhaps who are without hope and without help and that are miserable in their own lives, recognizing that there is no solution on their own, but that solution has been provided by you. Father, we pray that at this time they would put their faith, their trust in Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that you would challenge each of us with what we have studied, that we may have a greater and more profound understanding of who you are and what you are doing in history and in our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.